Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. For today's episode, we're excited to be partnering with SaneBox. As an entrepreneur or industry professional, we're also inundated with email now that it's no longer about responding to everything. It's about responding only to the important things, the messages that truly matter. And that's where SaneBox comes in. As messages flow in, SaneBox does the triage for you, sifting only the important emails in your inbox and directing all the other distracting stuff into your Sane Later folder. It also has nifty features like the Sane Black Hole, where you can drag messages from senders you never want to hear from again, and Sane Reminders to ping you if someone hasn't replied to your email by a certain date. Best of all, you can use SaneBox with any email client or phone, anywhere you check your email. They're also rated at 9.4 out of 10 stars based on over 500 reviews on Trustpilot. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com A-H-N today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash A-H-N. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Danny Tang. Danny is the founder and CEO of Boxsuit, a New York and Tokyo-based D2C snack subscription and e-grocer that delivers authentic Japanese food and lifestyle products to over 100 countries. Providing Japan's traditional makers with a platform to share their goods with a global audience, Boxu is helping to support, preserve, and promote their craft while making it easier for the rest of the world to discover, buy, and love authentic Japanese goods. The son of Cambodian Chinese refugees, Danny, was born in New York City and raised in New Jersey. He received a dual bachelor's in psychology and communication and a master's in sociology, all from Stanford University. He then worked as a marketing strategist at Google HQ. After that, he relocated to Japan for a position at Rakuten. It was there during the four years he spent living and working in Tokyo that he developed his deep love of Japanese food and culture, as well as met his wonderful husband. In his spare time, Danny is an avid rock climber, fierce board game competitor, and anime binge watcher. Danny, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Maggie Ryan. That was, that was great. Yeah, that's basically, we're done. That's me in a nutshell. <laughs> and Danny, I want to make sure we're, now pr- we're pronouncing your company name correctly. It's, is it Boxu or Boksu? It's, well, we say Boksu, just as the brand. But yeah, you're correct that in Japanese, it goes by Boksu, which literally means box. Awesome, awesome. And oh, you're awesome. complete, I want to say this, godsend, because we love Japanese snacks. You're free <laughs> to us. And it's like, whoa, like, and you offer a subscription model. So let's jump right into it. Like, first of all, I want to hear who, about who you are. So like, what was your upbringing like? Where'd you grow up? And how did you develop such an entrepreneurial mindset? Yeah. So as, as uh, Meg said, I was born in, in Manhattan, New York City. Uh, my parents were kind of living in the Bronx at the time because they like happened to get sponsored over from Cambodia after the Khmer Rouge and were just kind of like trucking and doing their thing, dishwashing, kind of sewing clothes, whatever they could do to get by. And shortly after I was born, my parents saved up enough to go move across the river to Jersey. And that's where I ended up um, kind of being raised. The entrepreneurial background, at that time, I didn't really know it. I like, I never really sought out to be an entrepreneur, to be honest. But um, to be honest, I think my, I probably got it from my dad. Uh, my dad was really scrappy and like I said, starve as a dishwasher, but then worked his way up in a lot of different ways. 
and eventually had his own like retail store in uh, North Bergen, which is right across the river, selling like back then Oriental gifts and shoes and things like that, as they would call it. And then um, eventually that opened his own wholesale kind of business where he started selling wholesale shoes to like Chinatown gift shops and things like that in New York. And so he was very scrappy and built his business over, and it's over 40 years now. He started it in the early 80s. And I think I got a lot of that from him. Funny enough, though, the, the short, long story short is that when I was younger, all the way in my 20s even, I was running away from that because I saw him do it. I didn't want to be like my dad. But then it kind of came full circle. And instead of shoes, I'm kind of, you know, selling Asian slash Japanese sacks kind of to America and worldwide. So we're still kind of you know, spreading Asian culture in some ways. <laughs> That's amazing. That's an amazing story, man. That is so heartwarming to see that, you know, the dream is really there and your dad, you know, seriously worked from the bottom and congratulations to all his successes, right? And the question I have is like, as you're transitioning to become your, your own business owner and entrepreneur, how much of that affects you in terms of like determining, like asking for help, fundraising, you know, like, I also come from a very similar situation too, where my parents own a youth appliance store. And for a while, when I became an entrepreneur myself, I had to unlearn a lot of things they, they told me like, you can't ask for help. You can't ask for money. Ask for money is weak. You got to just grind it out and just cry through, you know? <laughs> and it's like, it doesn't really work with today's world, especially in the startup world, right? And I'm, I want to ask that question because I feel like a lot of people are in similar positions and your story is very unique that you are in very in a very bad position, right? So how many things do you have to unlearn about like raising money and asking for help and doing all those things? I'm really curious. That's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that before, actually. (laughs) So to fully answer with context is you're absolutely right, especially because there's a lot of warring opinions that was in my head. I mean, some for kind of thankfully with some privilege since I went to Stanford, I actually had a good amount of friends that became founders. That's not an uncommon path for Stanford grads. And, And so or at least tried to be founders. And so I would get like advice from them. Um, so when I was first starting, I would ask them, you know, what should I do? Like, should I fundraise? Should I know? Should I, you know, and then they would give me their version of their advice just from their experience. And then I'll talk to my own father who did the small business thing for over 40 years. And he would give me almost a totally diametrically opposed advice. He'd be like, go very slow. Don't overextend yourself. Don't refund raise <laughs> and, you know, just build it brick by brick like I did because I bought one case of shoes and I sold it and then I bought two cases of shoes. And I was like, dad, this isn't the 80s. <laughs> but, uh, and so it was actually very confusing at times, but it really helped to get the multiple type of perspectives and for me to kind of see what fits with me. And in the end, that blended type of outlook really helped me out because Bongsu is a very unique business and the way I ran it was unique. We were bootstrap fully for like three plus years and mostly for like five. And, um, and part of that was that I was really trying to build solid unit economics, underlying business foundation before just like fundraising and burning it and fundraising more and burning it, which is not an uncommon path for the VC back world. And so I kind of walked this middle path where we still grew quickly, but I wanted to be mindful of what my dilution, like what my control, my destiny, and also realizing that just because I didn't grow as fast as that startup doesn't mean it's over. It's, it's like a marathon, not a sprint. And that, that kind of mindset came from my father for sure. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that. That mindset building big bird brick. That's exactly what my parents taught me too. And yeah, it's a lot of barriers. Yeah. And you mentioned that your product is very unique and I absolutely agree. First of all, I want to know, like, 
we know that you spent a couple of years in Japan and that's really where this idea kind of derived from, right? First of all, I want to know what that experience was like for you when you had brought back snacks to, you know, your family, to share with your friends and family, and then how this idea came about and what was going through your mind at the time thinking of coming up with something like Boxu because no one has really come up with something like this before. And with a lot of new ideas, you a lot of people tend to think like, is this something that can even be viable? Is this going to be, you know, revenue generating? Can I actually create a company with this product, right? And because it's so unique, what type of thoughts did you have in your mind during that time? Did you think it was going to be successful or did you have thoughts about whether or not it was going to be successful? I want to know about your thought process during that time. Sure. Wow, that was a lot of questions. Just tackle the first one. I went, I, I was good though. It was like multi steps. I'm like thinking about the long answer here. I lived in Japan for over four years. And so I got to like kind of come back and forth quite a lot from Japan back to America. And during that time, every single time I would bring back these like, you know, authentic regional Japanese snacks in my suitcase and share it with friends and family. And every time they were all like in love with it and every, like they were just be wowed by how different it was, the packaging, the smell. I mean, I myself was as well, just like living in Japan was, I was still stunned by that every day. And so that helped really plant the seed early on that there's something very special here. And what we really drove it home and why I kind of realized this could be something was when I moved back to New York City almost nine years ago now from Japan. And like after living here, I like lost access to all of that. And like I couldn't just so easily just fly over and get it because I was now more rooted in New York. And even if you go to the kind of Japanese grocery stores, it's generally like hockey, high chewish type of stuff, which are good. But, is, you know, that doesn't really show the full depth and breadth of what Japanese snack culture has to offer, in my opinion. And so that's kind of where it first started germinating the seed of an idea. And I think what really drove it home for me of why I wanted to do this was that after about a year of living in New York, to be perfectly honest, that first year, I actually hated it. <laughs> I had this like reverse culture shock because in Asia, I felt so seen. I like I didn't realize I forgot about that that low level of stress we all have as Asian Americans growing up here, where we have to deal with not only being invisible, but recently even being in fear and feeling like this type of hate we have. Like that doesn't exist in Asia because we're all the majority there, you know, for better or for worse in different ways. But like you know, for the first time ever, I felt kind of whole there and coming back to New York, even though New York is a pretty diverse city, all of a sudden I had to deal with racism again that I wasn't used to. And that made me kind of angry and made me want to do something about it. And instead of like kind of just complaining about it to my friends, I was like, why don't I try and start something to kind of bridge the divide a bit, kind of bridge cultures. And what better way than really delicious Asian food? <laughs> um, and that's kind of where that those two kind of starting points married and kind of developed Boxu in late 2015 when I kind of concepted that. And fortunately, it was able to kind of get it started as a solo bootstrap founder because like a lot of the things in my life that you kind of talked about before led me to having the right skills to do this. I knew how to do some web development from studying CS. I knew Japanese culture. I knew online digital marketing from Google. And so it was a kind of a, a nice culmination of all that. Yeah, we have to commend you for putting together everything. Just very, very special to your personal experience, right? Because living in Japan, you understand the culture and, you know, being your position, you're able to leverage your situations to make this happen. And I'm kind of curious too, like, I know even earlier that you mentioned that you bootstrapped everything. Walk us through that. How hard was that? Because from my own opinion and my own, own limited, very limited knowledge is that, you know, when you're doing like a packaging business, the margins at the beginning are very, very slim, right? And it's like, 
you're probably at most making a few dollars from each box, right? And I want to hear how you're able to manage the sourcing of the items for your box that will produce like the best results, right? Because as he, as consumers, it's just like, if there's a couple of items in there that I don't like, now it's like, oh, I, I can just buy those individually somehow, some way, right? And I want to hear about the thought process that you put into each box and each theme that you have. Yeah, the beginning, certainly the curation and sourcing of the box is very different from what it is now. That has reiterated a lot over time. I mean, we're still constantly reiterating because I never want to be fully satisfied with the product. I want to keep pushing our boundaries and limits. And early on, I didn't have the resources to source as much as we can now. So, you know, for full transparency, especially because I think we all got to hustle a little bit, right? Early on, even though a lot of the language was that, you know, oh, we're buying from these makers in Japan and these family businesses. I mean, that was always what I wanted to do eventually. But in the beginning, I couldn't. I didn't have those relationships. So I would have to buy them retail. <laughs> um, and I mean, still the same products, but, you know, you got to you gotta start where you can and like make that true later. <laughs> and uh, but I, from lots of founders I've talked to, you go retail, wholesale, you know, direct to manufacturer is the journey you got to take. And so in the beginning, it was really tough bootstrapping it. However, one thing I will say that made it better was because we were, we started off purely as a subscription box. So if you're like a, a CPG product, right, and you have to have like high minimum order quantities, you have to buy a lot of inventory in bulk, you have to get retail distribution or DCs, something like that. But with subscription box, it allows you to order as needed. So I would just forecast like, okay, at launch in April 2016, I need like, let's go for 40 subscribers. So then that's what I launched with. So I only got enough inventory for like 45, just in case. And then I would kind of grow that. The next month it was like 50 and 70. And by the end of that first year, half a year, I had like 150 subscribers and I was like delighted. And, um, you know, so it was a very scrappy early growth because I didn't have money to do Facebook advertising or do any of the kind of paid media stuff back in the day. But that allowed me to keep kind of burning costs down because I could just use that and keep growing from there as opposed to buying a ton of inventory up front and then having this cash flow cycle that's really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that's a really great approach because, you know, however many subscriptions that you get, you know exactly how many yet they need to buy from the vendors or the providers. And then it's pretty much just paying for itself, right? Because you're getting that prepayment from your buyers and your purchasers, and then that will fund for the stacks. And it also allows you to test. And that's what I did early on for the first year or two was a lot of testing, a lot of surveying, a lot of interviewing of the customers. Like in the beginning, I only had six unique products in the box, like still around like 20-ish items, 15, 20-ish. Like nowadays we're around 22, but like back then I just put in like four of each item, three or four of each item, because it's a lot of work to curate. Now we have about 16 unique products in the box and that's like 16 different vendors potentially that you have to work with to get that. And so that, but you know, early on I found out, oh, six is not enough, that the perceived value is too low. Like customers are saying it's not worth it, even though the number of items and the cogs are similar, cost of goods still that is. And so that allowed me to then test. And then like, even if some customers are unhappy early on and churned, I mean, I only had like 40 subscribers. So it wasn't a big deal. It didn't cause like lasting harm. And so it allowed me to experiment and um, and then grow and get the product more perfect so that I can scale it later. I love this hustle story. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, it, it makes it more realistic for the average entrepreneur, right? Because we look at this from a very... I guess like really like whole picture standpoint where you are today. And it's like, wow, like how can we even compete with that? Because like it takes a lot of sourcing, a lot of money, a lot of ads. Ads are everywhere, by the way. So 
I love I love seeing them because I'm almost like, oh, that looks a pretty good snack, you know? I'm kind of curious too, like about like scaling that business and and as you started to grow bigger and bigger, like were you doing this full time at the time or did you just totally make the jump and like scrape by and live in, you know, your parents' house or bedroom or whatnot and, and, and make it happen? Kind of, I was looking at your LinkedIn earlier, I noticed that there was like a three-year gap, right? In between like your, your business uh, development associate job and being a founder of Boksu. What was going on in that gap? Were you experimenting? Were you trying new things? Or I want to hear all about that struggle. Yeah, you guys are digging into the real questions. I love it. So I... After I quit Rakuten in Japan and moved back to New York, I went back to school at Columbia to study computer science in this like kind of post-baccalaureate program, thinking I was going to then pursue a master's and then get a job as a software engineer. I, the reasoning is that I was in tech for already three plus years, but always on the like marketing business dev side, but wanted to see, you know, engineers generally get all the cred in the tech world. And um, so I wanted to kind of see if I can shift a little bit of my career in that direction, but ended up dropping out of my program. And the full story, uh, which I don't actually tell terribly often because it's just like a long story, is that I was working with a friend and we co-founded some ideas before Boxu. So that was like a whole year of that where we were kind of got into this Columbia incubator called Columbia Startup Lab. And we were like testing different ideas, totally different. It was like, this was 2015. And so it was all about the C2C marketplaces, Uber for X, Airbnb for X days. And so we were trying to build those type of things but then it didn't work out and we pivoted like three times to different ideas. And it was very frustrating and very demoralizing at times that you have to keep trying. And so it wasn't like magical that I came up with Boxu actually. And then it was right away a success. I'd already had a couple of failures before that, that, you know, I was like kind of dipping into savings and then like, yeah, living with some parents, stuff like that. But, and then when I came up with the idea of Boxu in late 2015, I got really excited about it because this was something that, I was passionate about and my background was uniquely qualified for. My co-founder at that time was not interested. He actually thought it was a not great idea. <laughs> and so then we amicably split kind of thankfully now because it, like we didn't actually need to do this together. And then I then solo kind of started this, but it did help that I had about almost a year of this experience of doing other entrepreneurial things because then I knew immediately how to create an LLC, set up a website, kind of do all this stuff and get it going right away, create an MVP. I didn't create a uh, minimally viable product early enough in the other company. So now I learned from that and then made it you know, faster. So my MVP was in like two months um, after I concepted Boxu. It was a really ugly box. It was like, like bought it from paper <laughs> stores down the street and tied a ribbon around it with a sticker. But um, yeah, it was uh, what you had to do at that time. So that, that's kind of how I came up with the idea was from these failures and then realizing that if I'm going to do a startup, it should be something I give a shit about. I think it should be something that I want to wake up doing every day because it is a hustle. It is a drag sometimes. It's not fun packing boxes, but if you enjoy the like the actual product or the, the kind of mission behind what you're doing, that will keep you going. And to fully answer actually one of Maggie's earlier questions, I want to be clear that actually when I came up with the idea, I immediately Googled around and saw that there were other Japanese candy boxes already. So even though I came up with it myself, I, mean, I wasn't the first in the space. And so that helped validate it, that there were other existing ones. But the other ones were more about like wacky anime character, Pucky, Hello Kitty stuff. And so nobody was really doing what I wanted to do, which was kind of authentic family business Japanese snacks. So that's what allowed me to then take a chance on this because I was like, okay, well, there's some validation in the market. 
And being first is not everything, actually. It's better sometimes to come in later and just do it and execute better. Yeah, I love that so much. And, you know, the fact that you mentioned that you really have to be passionate about it to put in, you know, so much effort and hard work into it. And who wouldn't want to try Japanese stocks all day? Right? I'm sure you're trying Japanese stocks just to make sure it's good for your customers, right? And like, Brian knows this about me as well. Like, Japan is my favorite destination. Like, I, if, I, if you ask me like where I would want to go, if I could only go to one place as a vacation for a vacation, it would be Japan. And there's this one corn soup that they have in the vending machines. It comes out hot. And it's so hard to find. And remember the last time, like, Brian and I went to Japan, we looked everywhere and we looked in Tokyo, the vending machine was broken. And then this other vending machine in Tokyo, it like ran out. And so we had to go to Kyoto to look for it. It was crazy. But like, I understand what you're saying. Like when you go back to the States, like there's that part that's missing and you just want to have the snacks so often when you come back to the States. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And what Maggie's trying to say is, Danny, she wanted a corn box coming out of a bump. <laughs> we do have some pretty amazing corn snacks and we have a corn tea from Hokkaido that's actually really delicious. I am surprisingly, I was very surprised when I drank that and it was really, really good. Uh, I do actually still final taste test everything that goes in the box six, over six years later. We do. Tasting day happens once a month at, in Team Boxu and everybody loves it. It's a really fun oh, day. I love that. We sample over 30 different snack <laughs> products and then whittle it down to like 16 essentially for that month's curation. <laughs> you need to hire me. <laughs> Let us know you're hiring Megan. <laughs> you know, the inventory all day. Uh, and, and Danny, I have a, a very technical question, right? And sure. I, I know like, Pricing with subscriptions is, is a pretty interesting concept, right? And I'm kind of curious about like, I saw your, all your pricing tiers and your packages on the website. How did you determine the pricing tier of what works and what doesn't work? And out of curiosity, like what was the original first subscription price that you put out for to test things out? So pricing is, is, is hard, right? It's uh, There's definitely no easy answer to what is the optimal price. And even nowadays, I doubt myself. It's a, I don't think you ever feel, I don't know any founder that's like, this is the perfect price. It's the walk in a fine line of product market fit and it'll sell enough velocity that we still make enough margin. You're always wanting to tweak it a little bit. And like when Boxy first started in 2016, it was $39 flat. And how I came to that conclusion at that time was a combination of one, seeing what competitors were charging, two, working on a cost basis up because there are just some fixed costs that are going to be tough to reduce and it's not worth it to make it too cheap because then, especially as a bootstrap company, you can't survive on like 15% margins or something. You got to get at least 30% gross margins, if not better, in order to make a real business. And so, of course, that's, you know, different per industry, but in my kind of food D2C space, like 30 plus percent, I mean, jewelry is like 80% because they're all in branding and marketing and stuff like that they have to spend on. But, um, and in, in this space, I was aiming for 30 plus percent. And one of the costs that I could not really change was shipping because our stuff ships from Japan. So there's just always going to be this like floor that we, it's going to be hard to go below. And so I knew that. So I wanted to price it where there would still be comfortable margin for me to be able to experiment and kind of make like kind of mistakes if need be. And it's not going to be the end of everything. And, and that's how I first arrived at 39. It was a very simple like one third one third one third of co cost of goods kind of shipping there was no fulfillment because it was me packing it myself at that time and but nowadays it's shipping and fulfillment in that pie and um and then um kind of a gross margin 
And that's evolved a lot over time. So nowadays, if one looks on our website and box.com, it's $49.95 for the long kind of monthly plan. And it goes as low as kind of the original, almost close to the original price of $39.95 if they do a 12 month. And um, the reason we had to price increase, that all happened in 2020. So we kept that same $39 price for like four years, essentially. And then COVID happened. <laughs> and then shipping price rates went through the roof for me first before any other founder, because I ship everything by air. Because our, a lot of our snacks have only like two or three months of shelf life, which is why it makes it so special and unique. You can't find it in America because you can't import that by ocean. And so you can only ship it by like Japan Post or whatever to customers. But then unfortunately, in April 2020, Japan Post suspended shipping to 200 countries around the world. And I was shipping 100% of our parcels, our shipments at that time using Japan Post. And that was devastating. That like, I thought that my business was over. I remember thinking like, holy crap, am I going to have to declare bankruptcy after five years of just like hustling for this thing? But fortunately, I found after two weeks of working my butt off, found alternative shipping solution, only one that could do what I wanted to do in a reasonable price. And but it was more expensive. It was like 50% more expensive shipping. But I ate the margin for a good six months because I thought that COVID is like a three-month temporary thing. I think a lot of us did back in March 2020. But, um, and so, but then we had to price increase in summer of 2020. And then we price increased again in um, right before holiday season in 2020 because to where it is now, $49.95, because just the shipping was so ungodly expensive that it, we were essentially working on 18% gross margins in 2020. And that was not, that was not sustainable. You can't run a business like that. And so we increased, but fortunately, because we were growing so quickly and there was so much demand for Boxu in during COVID when nobody could travel or leave their homes, that like people weren't as price sensitive. I mean, nowadays we're still holding to that price. There has been a lot of inflation, like people talk about, but because we kind of preempted that and a lot of our supply chain is is in Japan and, and not as affected by ocean freight, which is where a lot of the inflation is coming from. We haven't had to increase our price again. Hopefully we'll keep holding out on that. Let's see. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's so much visibility to the type of things that founders go through, right? And yeah. it's especially shipping where I don't, unless you're in the industry, you don't really think about that as like a factor. But I, I mean, I have watched a lot of, and I have read, read a lot of news too, like shipping containers are like, 10x the price of what it was before. And it's like, it was a couple thousand. That was like 20, 30,000, 50,000 for a cheap one. A lot of people don't have that visibility. And I really appreciate you right. sharing that to the community. And I know earlier that you mentioned that during 2020, that you went through some hardships where it's like, oh, I don't know if my business is going to make it. I want to hear about your hardships earlier in the early stages of the book, see where you're packing the box and you get fed up. You're like, man, why am I doing this? Like I should be had a I should have a cushy job and my mom was right. I should have just stayed in college or something. <laughs> you know, stay in my job. <laughs> I want to hear about those moments of doubt that you had because I think as human beings, like we all go through those roller coasters of emotions of doubt and anger and frustration, right? Especially when you're doing something every day where it's like it's so unsub in some ways, where it's like no one sees you taping the box. Everyone sees this version of you. It's like, oh, at least do really well. It's coming screaming really fast. But you're, as you're packing each box, you're like going crazy. You're like, oh, I'm packing boxes. <laughs> I want to hear about that, that part of the story. Jesus. Oh, it's, I like have to dredge up those memories, but it's good. It's good to talk about that now. It's almost like therapy. So it's a good time. You're absolutely right. You made a guess, but my parents were actually against me starting my own business. They were uh, at first, they were like, 
why are you doing this? We went through this and it is not a fun journey. They're like, we worked our butts off so that you could have an easier life in, in America. And you, you have these, you know, you went to these schools, like just do whatever you want. Go work at Google again, super cushy. And but like, I just wasn't motivated or felt challenged and I didn't feel like I had impact in the role I was there. I mean, it's a great company and lots of people love working there. It just wasn't for me. And so what kind of kept me going at Boxy early on was just feeling that that weight of responsibility for better or for worse, right? Where everything I decided or did either grew the business or tanked it. <laughs> and like, but that type of direct impact I could see kept me going. Some of the really hard moments there to answer your question would be times when, oh God, like there, there were so many like really ups and downs. Like one good one is in early, like just early on in 2017, when we're still packing boxes ourselves, we have sacks and then we always include what we call the culture guide, which explains about kind of the sacks and common allergens, as well as where Japan is from, all that. And we were still kind of reiterating on that thing. Like, is it a postcard? Is it like a fold? Is it a magazine? And one month, I remember thinking, we like printed it from a new printer because we were just trying to save on some cost or something. And But we could, didn't get a chance to see it until it was too late. Like we already started outsourcing part of our packing to Japan, to uh, 3PL there. And it was only after it was already packed and shipped and it arrived that, to us, like a test shipment that we saw what it was. And it was like so thin and crappy and it looked like the cheapest thing ever. And like, we freaked out, like me and my team of three at that time, we were like, oh my God, everybody's going to churn. And we're just like obsessing over this like inconsequential thing in hindsight. But at the time we thought it was the biggest thing in the world. And our like 300 subscribers at that time, were just going to get super pissed off. And uh, yeah, exactly. I remember thinking like, wow, this is what I care about nowadays. It's like things like this. But, you know, in the end, a lot of these things, businesses are a lot more robust than you think they are. <laughs> like these, as long as the core kind of fundamentals of what you're offering are there. And if you kind of are still providing value, customers will like understand this is what I've learned over time. Um, even though the shipping issues in 2020, they were really bad, like weeks, if not months of delay sometimes. But I sent off like, sincerely written letters to like kind of from the founder that I wrote myself and sent off to the whole mailing list we had at the time. And by then we had like 10,000 subscribers or so, but, and people were, I mean, yes, some people are actually very not understanding and still being really mean. Um, but most people were really understanding and like, we're like, we get it. It's a small business. The world is tough right now. And that type of like a relationship with the customers was really heartening for me. Oh, well, I mean, I'm so glad that you were able to get over those problems. And it like exemplifies the fact that we look back every now and then and think the problem was so small, you know, and in the future, you have to experience bigger problems. And then the next year, bigger problems, but we eventually get over it and we find a way to get over it. And that's exactly what you did. So yeah. glad that you were able to kind of get through that speed bump. But, you know, it just goes to show like the problems that, entrepreneurs and small businesses go through every single day and the fact that we have to like just find a way to resolve and you know figure out how to get over it yeah yeah i mean especially early on there's a lot of firefighting one has to do once one grows larger yes now we can put in processes and try and like you know prevent some of these things but uh, especially as a first-time founder like there's mistakes you make as long as it's not like going to totally bankrupt you learn from it and kind of like get up again and like I've probably made dozens of mistakes that at the time I thought were like catastrophic. But then if you kind of are transparent or you make good or you, you do things that to like really, you know, make it up to the customer or your team or whatever it is, um, you should be able to get through it. 
Yeah. And I love that you put in a note, you know, that, that matters so much to customers. And it, it's like the smallest things that you don't really think about that really make the biggest difference. And if I were to receive, you know, a personal note from the CEO, just explain what's going on and, and you know, why this problem is happening, that matters a lot, you know, and it, it makes me want to become a reoccurring customer or a, a repetitive customer. So that those little things matter so much. I do want to talk about, you know, like when you were just starting out, when you were, you know, being scrappy in the first couple of years, you mentioned there's this article that mentioned that you guys didn't have any marketing budget for paid ads or sponsorships. And the way that you had marketed the product was through influencers on YouTube. Can you talk about your experience um, during that time and like how you were able to market the product and Boxer in general? I want to add on more to that question too, because you are the master of marketing. You live your brand, you brew your brand. And, you know, uh, for you guys, more context, like I saw Danny's products through another friend's event in New York. And he was carrying around his box the whole night. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I want to hear like you just live, breathe, and eat the brand, right? And I, I like that a lot. I want to hear about your marketing side a lot more too. Yeah. I mean, so from the beginning, since I didn't have a marketing budget or any of external funding, I knew that I had to, this had to be like a, I had to live and breathe this brand. I couldn't like hide behind it. I couldn't just be like this kind of invisible founder CEO. I had to really like kind of always be selling, so to speak, whether it be, the box or the brand or the purpose or the mission or the ethos or whatever it is. I, I can't be afraid of putting myself out there because who else is going to sell the brand and product if it's not me, especially when I didn't have much of a team back in the day. And I think I've just kind of, it's already integrated into me. I don't even realize I do it sometimes when I go to events nowadays. But yeah, early on, it was very much certainly my own networks, right? In the beginning, like posted to, when I launched in April, 2016, it wasn't really a launch. Like I, I literally just posted to my Facebook. I was like, Hey, everybody, I launched this company. Please sign up. Here's a discount code. Please help me take these surveys. And like the vast majority of the 40 subscribers um, in the beginning were just all friends. They were all people that were kind of supporting me. And then, but of course, I mean, that runs out at a certain point. And um, in like the early ones I got were all very scrappy. It was kind of in-kind influencers. So I would send them product and then they would just review it, but they wouldn't get any type of payment because I didn't have money for that at that time. It was like kind of box review sites. It was kind of just referral programs, word of mouth, like anything like that. And I didn't even have like Google search ads turned on. I mean, I worked in Google ads back in the day. And so I know that you need a certain amount of budget to make it worth, as well as you need to have some brand recognition. Like people aren't going to click on your ad and convert if you don't have a certain level of, you know, trust. And so early on, wanted to build up that trust by trying to build this evangelical following of early adopters and giving them like kind of more personal attention. I used to hand write a, a postcard, like a founder's card in every single month's box early on where I would like personalize it to them and thank them for um, subscribing. And I hope they enjoy this month's box or something. I was able to keep doing that till a hundred subscribers, but then like, I just, I just couldn't write cards anymore. And then from there, we started having me hand sign them. We would still, we'd print the card and I would hand sign it. And that lasted to like 300 subscribers. And then that also couldn't, couldn't go anymore. And so then we, we now print everything, but with like my signature printed. So we still continue the founder card thing where I type a message and like kind of talk to them about my spring being a Sakura being my favorite season or something like that and cherry blossoms. But so it's a lot of that, like building that passionate following before you throw ad money on it. I, I kind of, I'm a big proponent of that because unless you have really good product market fit. And you if you just throw money on it, you're just burning cash. 
you're just like negative gross margins and, and it's not going to work if you are not see, knowing the LTV, the customer acquisition costs of your customer. Uh, I love that. Uh, I, I think that goes go such a long way, right? Of like just nourishing the relationship you have with your community and what you're doing right there, you're building super fans, right? And these people obviously talk about your product to other people. And I think people underestimate that because there's no way to measure it. Right. right. They're like tangible <clears throat> things to help your brand grow and who you are. And just talking to you, looking at, before I even talk to you, like looking at your brand, it's like, it's very warming. It's a reflection of who, of the founder, right? I think what people don't realize about companies is that the founder's heart and soul is reflected throughout the entire organization. If they feel a certain way, the organization would feel that way. They act a certain way, the organization would act that way, right? I always feel like you come from a, a very pure point of view. So thank you for sharing that information because we need to hear that, right? It's not a soulless entity like we see in those movies or it's like it's soulless evil corporations. It's not like that nowadays. It's like, it's, it's a heart and soul. What we stand for is really important. For sure. And then like I, that's actually the moments that I've had doubt in my company is when I reach these points where if I ever feel like we're losing that heart and soul in Voxu, that's when I have to like check that re like address that conflict whatever it is whether it be like a message that's off brand that's like actually kind of exoticizing asian culture or something and like because i don't control every part of the business now that's so, all like we have teams and stuff but like there's still some guidelines and um, things that we have to follow by like we we never use the words like wacky crazy exotic weird in any of our branding or marketing because there's nothing weird about asian snacks or asian products it's just, you know, we just, people aren't used to it. And so we just got to make it approachable and we got to bridge that kind of gap. We also would never like hypersexualize any of our feet, like you know, women in our, you know, images or photography that we do. Like that's not what we're going for. And, and like that whole thing, and that all does come from the top. Like this is a strong viewpoint I have. And it's not even about like trying to be diverse. It's just that we're trying to speak to everybody. We're trying to prepare a product that is inclusive for all types of people. And to do that, it comes from the product, the voice, the brand, exactly. Absolutely agree with that statement, Danny. And for the last part of our podcast, I want to focus the conversation back on yourself. Knowing that you have so much going on, how do you take care of your mental health? And how do you set aside time for Danny time, right? Because you know, you're taking time to run your business, but at the same time, it, it's still a lot of in-person labor to like get everything in place. So how do you make that time for yourself and take care of your mental health? I'm still figuring that out, to be honest, but there are little things I try and do. So my husband is a big one. If I was, I truly believe if I was single, it would, this would have, this whole journey would have been a lot harder. Not having somebody to rely on. He has a more stable job at like a big tech company and like kind of benefits and things like that. So uh, like having that net safety net, having that privilege of knowing that I can fall back on somebody that's there for me is a huge deal. Like absolutely. And especially as a solo founder, not having a co-founder. And so, I mean, he's so tired of hearing me complain about all different aspects of my work, but um, that, so that's number one, just having that type of rock and person I can kind of rely on and trust in when everything's going wrong sometimes at Boxu knowing that this is going right, as cheesy as that sounds, um, that really helps stabilize me. But also making time for me to follow passions outside of Boxu. I am very passionate about the, the culture, the mission, the language, like sacks, but I can't only live and breathe inside my team and my company. So like the other big thing I have is rock climbing and bouldering. Like I love rock climbing so much. It's kind of almost people are tired of hearing me talk about that too. And so I, um, Make sure I set aside time, like at least ideally it'd be three or four times a week. But if I can get two times a weekend, 
that would make me really happy. And I like, you know, don't have to think about it. My rock climbing friends know I'm the founder of Boxer, but it's not, not a big deal for them. And so I really appreciate that whole like escape where I can just turn my brain off of, of constantly thinking and worrying about what's happening with work. I love that. And I think we're all trying to figure it out, right? We're, we're still learning every single day of how to improve on, you know, reflecting on our own mental health and, you know, making sure that we're happy, making sure that we make time for ourselves. But, you know, I, I love that you have a good support system, you know, having your husband be there and listen to all the, the problems that we have to go through. We need someone to be there to listen to the problems. But yeah, that's that's so amazing. I know that there's a really big, important seat that you're very super proud of, which is the fact that your staff is now of 50, right? 80% of whom are BIPOC, female and or LGBTQ plus community. So that is so amazing. I just wanted to point that out before we close out. And I know you mentioned that you intentionally invest all of your time and effort into making sure the workplace is a very transparent and fun and inspiring workplace for your employees. Can you talk about like, what are the, some of the ways that you make sure that your workplace is like fun and inspiring and transparent? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, just to make it clear to everybody listening and watching is that I didn't hire specifically for people of this background. I think it kind of like, it's almost this self-fulfilling prophecy or cycle where because I'm a queer Asian guy, which is really rare in the entrepreneurship founder CEO role, I think that makes certain types of people comfortable to apply and go their interview process. And then when they talk to me, um, I'm generally the closer in the final interview nowadays. And they like really like that they feel safe or comfortable with me. And it's not just like straight white men in a tech Silicon Valley, like type of stereotypical situation. Um, and so that just, that really helped. And it's why I always push for like more diverse, like VCs and founders and all that, because it trickles down in a good way where they're attracted to join. I don't have, I'm, I always try not to have any bias in like selecting based on background. I just want to pick the best people and they want to join. And so just the, it's not just my intentionality of putting into workplace. The team itself is vibrant. They're all from different backgrounds, from different like, you know, races and, and sexual um, kind of orientations and stuff. But that helps create this different workspace where everybody feels comfortable being themselves because there is no one way to be. And that already makes people feel safe and inclusive. But other things we do is I spend a lot of time investing into making sure that we do team lunches and we have annual retreats. We actually had two last year to like make up for a lack during COVID sort of. I pre like we recently got an office manager. Her name is Kiza. She's amazing. But she, she's been like kind of taking on the mantle for a lot of this. But before her, I still organize all of that. Um, there were sometimes I cooked dinner for my team doing a happy hour at my place or something. And they were so appreciative that the CEO would kind of go out of way and, and like spend time with them. And for me, it's because one, I'm actually humbled and honored that yes, everybody gets paid to work here, but they're still, it's their time, right? That time is that precious resource can't get back. And I'm honored that they're willing to spend it like with kind of believing in my mission and kind of going on this journey together. So I want to invest into them. And so I invest a lot into um, spending time with the team, um, showing up at the office every day where we have a hybrid model, but I, I love working in the office and kind of being here. And so I think that kind of helps drive and motivate people to see that the CEO is not on a beach. You know, like it's not like already checking out. It's like still in this with everyone together. And that I think causes um, like a lot with allows people to also kind of bring their full self and work hard. I love that. That's such great culture building advice, right? And 
Yeah, you just gave me a lot of pointers too. Oh, Maggie, we gotta cancel that beach trip. We can't. We can't, we can't no. Yeah, we'll cancel it. <laughs> no, vacation is needed here, that for sure. I just mean the whole idea with Basir just like is doesn't even like isn't even there, you know, with everyone. It's just in his own office or constantly yeah. like, you know, vacationing or something. But certainly everyone needs a little mental break here and there for sure. <laughs> so Danny, I have one final question for you. And that question is what advice would you give to someone listening to this podcast working in their cubicle or, or home office or not thinking about making that transition? It's transition entrepreneurship. Is that what you mean? That's correct. They're like constantly telling their friends, I want to start something. Yeah. I want to do something, but they don't know what that thing is. Right. And they haven't really had the courage to make that jump yet. So what would be your advice? My advice is to really make sure that you have a lot of your foundation and bases covered before you make that jump. Because there is this like sparkle and shine to like entrepreneurship, especially the ones that do well, but you only see the side that it's all growing and doing super well and they just fundraise or whatever. And you don't see a lot of the ugliness underneath sometimes. The high amounts of stress, your hair turning gray, your sleepless nights, fights with your family or spouse. If you, you can't make ends meet with money, and they're like, that's all very real, right? And now a lot of people not don't talk about that. So like, make sure that you have enough savings to last you like a year because you're not going to be getting paid for a while. I mean, longer would be better, but not everybody has that kind of privilege to do that. Make sure that you have some type of fallback plan. Like maybe you can still get a job afterwards, even if the entrepreneurship thing doesn't work out. Make sure that whatever you're doing, you actually have the passion for because, and it doesn't have to be the product. It could just be the mission. But like, if you're doing something that's totally left field from who you are, it's going to be hard to keep motivated to, um, to do that. Like I used to like write the culture guides myself and, um, but I really enjoyed like relearning about the history of rice cracker senbeis and like when it started and like reading all about like kind of articles about that online. And I, cause it's like super nerdy and I really enjoy those parts of Japanese culture. But now if you don't like that, if you don't like these like weird esoteric things, don't run a business that does stuff like that. So like, just make sure that those things are ready and aligned. Cause it does take a lot of privilege to be an entrepreneur for better or for worse. And I think people need to realize that before they jump in with no savings, like kind of caution to the wind. And then all of a sudden they're kind of in debt and it's, it's not great. That's really, really good advice. And that really has home with me too. Right. And I just remember making that jump too. I'm like, oh no, like the stress is real. Like, where's the money going to come from? Like, I left my cushy job. And you realize that, you know, it's not right to to correlate my identity with money and my job title and everything. I'm here for me. And that passion really moves you forward because you'll be, I'll probably just curse in this podcast for sure. You just be eating shit every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, that's honest. And it's like that for a long time. Like, it's, if people think that, as soon as you're successful, you raise a big round, you can just relax. It's not true. It's it actually, since my fundraising announcement of the Series A in January, it's only gotten more busy, more crazy, more stressful. The scrutiny is higher as well for everything you do now. And so it actually just gets harder. I, I, it doesn't get easier until you exit fully and then you're no longer working at the company. And that takes anywhere from seven to 10 years from start for most people. The hustle yeah. number ends. <laughs> <laughs> so Danny, uh, how can our listeners find out more about you and, you know, learn more about Boxu? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so if they just visit Boxu.com, B-O-K-K-S-U, that's where a lot of it is there. And we also just launched our expansion store, BoxuGrocery.com, where we're now also selling and trying to provide like 
online Asian groceries and ingredients and soon frozen items and alcohol as well. There's a little tidbit here, um, shipping nationwide, including Las Vegas. And, um, and so you can like there and then, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, Danny Tang, uh, T-A-I-N-G, which is the Cambodian Chinese spelling of, of that last name. It's a rare one. So I come up really easy in SEO. So I'd be very careful. <laughs> awesome. We'll leave all that in the show notes. But Danny, thank you so much for being the podcast today. We absolutely loved it. Thank you so much, Danny. Thank you for having me. It's been such an honor and pleasure. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes. So be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday. So stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.